This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of the best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fambergas. And I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making Veritas possible. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to both segments of tonight's interview and all of our material. And to those in the United States, I hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. Tonight's special guest is someone who has been recommended for some time. If you listen to my colleague Kevin Smith, then you probably know Jerry Wills. Among the many topics we'll discuss tonight, I want to take you back to November 2009. You may or may not remember the news that a Bulgarian scientist claimed that he had extraterrestrial contact. The news took alternative media by a storm. At the time, one of our own Veritas members, Dr. Brian Ostrowski, an American professor at a university in Vietnam, was in touch with me. In fact, I had met Brian in Arizona at an event with Dr. Stephen Greer a month before, in October of 2009. Well, Dr. Ostrowski, or Brian, served as the broker for an interview I was planning with Dr. Lachesar Filipov. All of a sudden, all messages from Brian stopped. He had sent me Dr. Filipov's contact information, resume, etc. And Dr. Filipov would not answer emails or even his telephone number. They both vanished. Brian was an active participant at our forum. You can search for some of his messages there at the forum. He's, he was the user Indochina. Well, Brian, if you are okay and are listening, Drop me a line and let me know you are fine. I really want to know. At any rate, back to our special guest, Jerry Wills. Jerry and his wife, Kathy, traveled all the way to Bulgaria and met and interviewed Dr. Filipov. We will discuss that experience and many others right now on VeritasRadio.com. This is Kevin Smith from The Kevin Smith Show, and you are listening to The Veritas Show.
And folks, usually I read a bio for the guest I'm going to be interviewing, but tonight is different. I'm going to let the uh, guest introduce uh, himself in a, in, a, in a minute. But before doing that, I want to let you know why and how I get in touch with tonight's guest, Jerry Wills. It was one of our listeners, Kathy Pope from the East Coast, who told me, Mel, you, you need to really be exposed to, to Jerry's work. And I started doing that in the past few days. But what really caught my attention, in addition to all the things you'll hear about Jerry tonight, was the fact that he... Let me go back in time. November 2009. Somebody sent me a news headline that said that a Bulgarian Academy scientist was reporting to be in touch with aliens. Now, when you read something like that, the first thing that comes to mind is, this is probably a hoax. But I started looking into this. And then one of our listeners, who happens to be Professor Brian Ostrovsky, he's a, an American professor who lectures in, in, the, in the Vietnam National University. He has a PhD in history from Cornell University. Also forwarded information about Professor Lashisar Filipov. Not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but he sent me his resume, his curriculum vitae. We tried to get in touch with him. Professor Ostrowski got in touch with him. We were going to do an interview. All of a sudden, Professor Ostrowski, or Brian as I call him, he disappeared. The same thing with Professor Filipov. So fast forward now to the year 2012. I hear that tonight's guest was brave enough to and his wife, Kathy, I believe, flew to Bulgaria and actually interviewed Professor Filipov. And some of you may have heard the story also in my friend's, uh, my colleague, uh, Kevin Smith's show. But with, without further ado, I would like to introduce, for the first time on Veritas, Jerry Wells. Hello, Jerry, and welcome. How are you? Hi, I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me on. It's a real privilege. It's my pleasure, Jerry. And as I was saying at the beginning, I usually read a a bio of, of my guest, but I'm not going to do that tonight. I'm going to let you tell the audience, who is Jerry Wills? Give us a background uh, of, of you. <laughs> well, let's see. Where do I start? Um, <clears throat> I am currently 59 years old. I arrived uh, here uh, back in... Um, the early 50s, uh, probably 53. No one's really sure. Um, let's see. I grew up in the hills of Kentucky, and I remained there until I was about 18. I left, went out into the world, and have now gone all over the world. Um, and my quest in life is looking for lost in ancient places, lost cities in South America with my wife, Kathy. She's really the brains behind that, that end of things. I'm also a healer uh, from a very early age. I had what some would call you know, quite extraordinary psychic abilities, and it, it actually frightened the folks around the community where I grew up. They didn't really have a word for it. They didn't know what it was or how to deal with it, so I had to be quiet for quite a long time. My capacity was in being able to know what's going to happen in the uh, near or distant future. It was also touching something, knowing the story behind it, uh, seeing the other side, kind of like uh, John, John Edwards on TV. Um, and... When someone has something wrong with them, I could put my hand on them, look inside, see what was wrong, and in some instances, now several thousand instances, um, just make it go away. So I've been coined as a medical intuitive or a healer. I'm not sure. Uh, those are rudimentary phrases that help to... Uh, give a better understanding to what I do, but it doesn't really completely explain what I do. And I've never really been um, able to explain it that well myself. It's the reorganization of matter, I suppose. But aside from that, uh, probably during my 12th year, uh, things started to occur. Actually, things started to occur prior to that you know, by many, many years. 
I didn't have vocabulary to explain it early on. Later, when people were seeing UFOs around central Kentucky, um, well, I was seeing them as well. And it eventually went into a paradigm where I was um, actually seeing them land and speaking to the people who were inside. And they were making an obvious, uh, an intentional choice to seek me out and have conversations with me. I discovered later what the reasons for that might have been. Um, I wasn't the only one. There were others they were talking to as well as I understood it. So my existence has been quite uh, odd. It's not like anything that a person there would have expected. I never really expected it. Um, I spend part of my time in high on mountaintops in the Andes or in the jungles of the Amazon looking for clues for past civilization. Stumble into a village. People are sick. I work on them. They're better. Uh, come back home, work on people here, travel all over the world, doing both. And it um, it has been quite an interesting life up to now. You were born, uh, you just said that you were, you're not sure, but you were born, I believe, on September the 11th, correct? No, that's the paperwork at Fort Knox, the official. That's the paperwork. Up. Okay, so you're not sure, but the paperwork says September 11th. Before well, no, the we... paperwork says September 11th, but that was but, that was put in place so I'd have legitimate paperwork. Exactly. So, so that was a date they put there so that you were legitimate. In other words, now Fort Knox, were you adopted? In how? how I'm a little bit confused, and this is this gets really interesting. We're, and folks, we're going to start with the background first, so that we know who we're speaking with here. You were. Adopted, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And you think that you came from Fort Knox. Can you please explain? Well, no. When I was retrieved, I was taken to Fort Knox and kept there until I was better uh, because I'd been left out due to a clerical error of AM to PM. I'd been left out in freezing temperatures for 12 hours, huh. maybe, maybe longer. So um, I resided at the hospital there in Fort Knox for I don't know how long. I was a baby. I haven't any way of knowing. Right. When I was well enough, then I was assigned to um, a man and his wife. They couldn't have children, and they adopted me. When did you find out that you were adopted? Well, the first time I found out was when I was 14 years old. That's when the, those um, folks that I was talking about earlier, the ETs, uh, there were some troubles at home, and it, it was a rather ugly situation. My stepfather, my adopted father had died by this time, and my adopted mother had remarried. I didn't know she was my adopted mother at the time. And my stepfather was an alcoholic and very abusive, and I was given the opportunity to leave if I wanted to, and I couldn't see my way clear to do that. The second time, uh, and, I, and I didn't really believe that I was adopted at that point, uh, and the word adoption wasn't used. They just said that she's not really your mother. It's all right if you leave. Um, a bit startling and disconcerting. Um, I didn't leave, obviously, and it wasn't until um, I was 38 years old. One second, um, when you when you say you were you were given the option to leave at the age of 14, where could you have left to? I could have gone back. Now, to an, expl explain world. to us when exactly. Explain to us when you say you were retrieved and going to where. Please explain. Well, um, of course, being a baby, I haven't any proper recollection of this. Mm -hmm. Fragmented images, best that I could ever pull. But um, it's a rather complicated story and uh, complex in its dissertation. But essentially what happened is that I was brought here and put into an abandoned place somewhere out in... I don't know, rural America, Kentucky, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah. 
I was left there, and there was a project that, uh, and I don't remember the name, I think it was called Project Red Light, but you know, that's, I'm not sure if that's true or not. Anyway, there was a project, and there were several children of uh, varying, very early ages who were brought here from other worlds, and they were put into place. And then the government would go in, pick them up, take them, and make sure that they were fine, well, everything is good, and then they would be placed with families within the echelons of, of the um, you know, the people in the service, or however they decided to do it. I really don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was when I was dropped off, um, <laughs> it was supposed to be I get picked up within a couple of hours, and it was more like twelve or fourteen hours, and I had frostbite over most of my body. I nearly died. And f- from there. That's when they assigned the the adopted uh, adoptive family to you. Yes. Now, at the age of fourteen, you could have chosen to to leave. Now, do you know where you would have left to? Do you know where your planet of origin is? Tau said. Well, yeah. It, um, it, 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 my understanding is, and from the things I've been told, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, tell you from an educated position that you know, yeah, I've been there, and this is how you get there. But the things that I've been told, because I had contact with these um, these folks for approximately four and a half, almost five years. And during that period of time, they gave me quite a bit of detail and, and guidance. And part of it was this other place and what other worlds are out there, who's out there, what it's like, and so forth. And when they said that I had the option of leaving... It was to one of these places that they suggested there were people like myself living currently and that I had the option of going there instead of staying here. Now, this is all happening physically? physically. Whoever you're, you, you have, you're speaking with somebody from that planet who is in contact, in contact with you? Yeah, his name was Zo. Z-O. Uh, well, I don't know about the spelling, but that's how I spell it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was. I, I had sandwiches with them. I sit down and you know uh, spoke with them. It was a very cordial affiliation. They they were more family to me than the family that I was with. They and they looked human. and respect. Yeah, they were human. They looked just like us. Okay. And why? What do you think the purpose was? You also mentioned other children that were placed here for the same reason. What was the purpose of placing you here at that time? I was told, and of course, who knows how things might have changed since then. But I was told that there was something that was supposed to take place um, <clears throat> between 2011 and 2012. And that was the reason why we were here, that there were events that were going to lead up to it, that there were going to be things that I would pay attention to and I would watch, not to become a point of interference or to help direct anything. It's when I was called upon and needed, and that's when I would take action. And that action would be... uh, given in kindness, in gentleness, and uh, in the spirit of trying to assist uh, without, um, you know, without, without causing too many waves. You see, the, the story basically is that they had tried to do something like this uh, in a prior time, and it didn't turn out so well because they just basically showed up and tried to help to guide this world into a direction. And they were looked upon as gods. They were considered to be some elite, angelic fleet. Uh, there, there are several different ways that they are described in ancient history. But they are always on the outside looking in, and they are a power to be concerned about and uh, feared, and they didn't want that. Instead, this time, their concept was to bring the children here 
from these various places, and I don't know what places these are. I don't even know if it's within the same timeline. It's, it's a very big mystery to me. But they would bring them here. We would grow up. We would be part of the community of the Earth, and we would be rightful citizens of this world with a voice and the capacity to say what we felt we needed to say without being looked upon as something enigmatic or fearsome. Instead, we would be looked upon um, as another person, which is exactly how it should have been in those prior occasions, but it just didn't turn out that way. You know, Jerry, granted that we have evolved socially and culturally in this world where the differences in cultures and races are, are not as, as, do not create the impact that they used to, but we still have discrimination. We still have racism. We still have all those, uh, all those issues that plague the entire planet still. If we can't even get along sometimes with people f who speak a different language, even though there are people like you who came from other places and are here, what makes you feel that the planet, and I'm talking in general, not the people who listen to the show, who I don't say this to, to, to sound arrogant, but I think we've evolved a little bit more. We we're ready to embrace this. But most people on this planet, if they're not ready to, to interact with other cultures on this planet, what makes you feel that they're ready to interact with people from other planets? Well... They aren't, because there is a great serious mindset towards the separateness. Um, there's a fear of being lost in the union with others, and that's why there's such um, a sorry state of affairs. But in truth, the um, the reason we were here was not to usher in a, a grand scheme of, of cross-platform communication so that greater degrees of uh, acceptance could be experimented with. Instead, we were here because there was a great potential that the timeline would occur in such a way that this world would fall into fear and darkness. And should it fall into fear and darkness, it was on the path of destruction. And once that destruction had uh, occurred, there would need to be those who knew how to dig out of that debris and rise above that chaos. It wasn't to usher in a golden age of communication. It was to help maintain a level of sanctity for human life and for us to be able to help those who remain to carry on and perhaps do better next time. It isn't the first time this has happened to this world. It's happened many times, and there's great hope that it wouldn't have happened this time, uh, that this darkness wouldn't have occurred. But it has, and so now we, I guess, uh, have to deal with that. You say that part of the plan is to, to put these people like you here so that you're not locked up, looked upon as gods as it happened before. Am I right in saying that this is probably what happened to the Mesoamerican cultures, the Mayans, the Aztecs, the Incas, and even the Egyptians, that they looked upon these visitors as gods? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, of course. You know, there, there's always that separation, gods and men, angels and aliens. It was always a separation between the two. And if you don't have the power then you are susceptible to that power that you don't have. That was something that needed to be corrected and um, done away with. Now, going back to your childhood for a second, correct me if I'm wrong, but at, when you went to uh, eighth grade in school, when you started eighth grade, you were six feet, six foot two inches. And when you ended eighth grade, you were six, six, and now you're six, eight. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Now, tell me how it felt when you were in eighth grade and you were probably the tallest person in the entire school. Well, it was very uncomfortable. Um, the family was very poor. I didn't have uh, adequate clothes. Uh, they were very shoddy. Um, and the other kids who uh, were in a better financial circumstance, they dressed much nicer. 
So I was really the butt of jokes. When your pants are too short and yeah. the Adams family is popular on TV, you become the butt of jokes where you're called Lurch. Mm. To cap it off, if that weren't bad enough, um, well, to give you some idea, when I was in second grade, I had finished reading for the second time uh, Einstein's book on the theory of relativity. <laughs> when I was in the eighth grade, I was already into the third year of um, college trigonometry and, um, and algebra. Uh, I had a uh, photographic memory. I was memorizing books and encyclopedias. I had read all the works of Shakespeare a couple of times. I had read uh, every one of the encyclopedias in the library and could recite from them. So I was quite the oddball as well. Did you graduate and early? No. No, it was a country school. Um, when I got into the first year of high school, I was flunked in algebra because I refused to do something so inane. Why, why go through 45 different functions to prove, uh, to prove an, uh, you know, an equation mm -hmm. when I could prove it in five and do it with great finesse? Mm. So it was uh, back to basic math, back to basic science. Uh, in my science class, I read the book, the entire book, within the first two weeks and finished all of the paperwork for that book within the month. So I didn't have to do anything else the rest of the year in science class. In history, I didn't have a book because they ran out of books. But it was no problem. I borrowed a friend's book, read it, then I knew everything, and I would take a test, and I would always pass it. Did you ever have did you did you ever have any of the teachers or the principal or or somebody from the outside coming to interview the reason why I ask you because I've heard of similar stories in the former Soviet Union of people who displayed these abilities and they were sometimes even kidnapped by the government to be used for God knows what purpose but in your case did they advance you did they did they push you to graduate faster did they offer you any anything special because of your displayed abilities no they never even recognized they were there there was it was basically business as usual, and, you know, I'm just being a wise guy because I can out-talk, out-think, and out-function uh, anyone that I was around, and so no one liked me. Mm. My vocabulary was well beyond anyone who was there. My prowess at mathematics was well beyond my teachers. They didn't like that at all. Sure. I always was showing them that they were wrong. The... Um, my views on history, U.S. history, was boring. And as I told the teacher, history is written by the conquerors, and mm -hmm. I'm not exactly sure the story is as accurate as it could have been if we're, if we're related by the American Indians. <laughs> you were saying this at what age to the history um, teachers? Uh, what age was that? Thirteen. Gosh, and do do you even do the even people who graduate from high school today, do they even know that history is written by the winners? And you at the age of 13 were already saying that to your teachers. Incredible. Well, I was also receiving tutorage from the extraterrestrials. Now so explain had, that. Explain that physically or telepathically? Well, physically and telepathically. It was I was there physically and it was being impressed into my mind. Uh, through the teachers using a telepathic process. It was much more equitable than trying to speak because of the, the flow of information was much more rapid, so I could pick up a lot more detail that way. Mm -hmm. Were you ever able to go back to your planet of origin in any of those visitations? No. No, I... Um, I was only offered that one opportunity, and if I had been offered another, I don't recall it. But the um, the opinion that I had was that I was here for a reason, that I was here to do something good for others and to try and make a difference in this world. If I left, then it would have been a wasted lifetime, and that would not have agreed with me. Right, which makes sense. 
What happened afterwards? I believe, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but September the 11th is the date that shows that you were born. And every September 11th, every 10 years, you received visitation. Am I correct? It was within uh, 60 days of that of that date. Typically, the visitations would occur uh, early November. Um, usually early November. It wasn't really in September that they they happened. There there were things that took place, you know, around that date. And I never knew why the date was important. They just said it was an important date. Pay attention because this is going to let you know what direction the world is going in. Was it every 10 years? Well, it was every 10 years that they would show up, yeah. Yeah, okay. So there's a, a decade in between each each visit. Yes, exactly. Why so long? Why so long between visit? I don't know. That was never explained. And what happened... After September the 11th, 2001, they never showed up again. Why do you think that happened? Well, I guess it was because at that point, it was obvious what direction the world was going. All the things they had taught me and and showed me, had shown me the um, the pieces were now in place. The game was afoot. And I don't know why they haven't shown up. Um, and I had planned to ask them when they do. So when you say the the game was afoot, what do you really mean? Well, the world was basically heading into the wrong direction. If there was going to be any great strides in in uh, the progress of of humankind. In 1995, you did an interview and you were talking about December 21st, 2012. We discuss this here all the time. The Mayans talked about it. The Hopis, the Sumerians, uh, you name it. What's your stand? What's your stand today about that that very that we call it infamous date of December twenty first, twenty twelve? Well, my my position has never changed. I believe it is a mark in the sand, you know, a line in the sand, uh, and it certainly, in my opinion, is. Uh, it's a it's a it's a time of great crossing, and uh, I think we have seen up to this point in time that. The end of the world doesn't happen on a particular date. The end of the world is a drawn-out affair that happens over the course of several years. Um, and I don't mean that metaphorically. But if you take a look at the folks in Japan, they've had the, their end of the world. Japan is a radioactive mess. It's tragic. Um, the folks down in Louisiana after Katrina... It just might not ever be the same. And for many of them, it will never be the same. Uh, the event, a thousand mile wide hurricane, uh, the end of October, slamming into New Jersey and covering New York. The place is swamped. It has no power. Trees down all over the place. And then followed by a huge, huge blast of Arctic air, creating ice and snow. The end of the world is really a buildup of of places where the earth is cleansing and changing. And I don't know that December 21st is going to be lights out for the entire world. I kind of doubt it. But I do think it'll be lights out for someone somewhere under some circumstance. And the sadness about all of it is that if there wasn't such separateness between the people of this world and the world, that it could be a more cooperative union. You know, if, if you're aware that something's wrong and you do something about it, then it's corrected, if it's correctable at all. And what I'm referring to here, basically, I want you to consider that... Um, Here's here's a good example. Uh, my good friend Ingo Swan was being studied by parapsychologists, and they put a compass underneath of a piece of uh, a glass dome, and they asked him to move the compass, which he did. Um, Yuri Geller, spoons and and knives and forks and keys, metal objects just bent. 
my friend who's now deceased, Safwat, Dr. Safwat Alamin, takes three steps and suddenly he vanishes, comes back a half hour later with a newspaper from Cairo. He jumped there, he jumped back. Huh. He could float a person up in the air. He could take a quarter and just bend it in his fingers by breathing on it. You witnessed that? Yes. Now, if these individuals have that capacity, which I believe is a capacity that all people possess, if you would just tune into it, if you would just figure out how to, how to use it, how to connect with it. If this is, if this is true, if I'm correct about this, what would a thousand people be able to do about world hunger or war or injustice? or a giant storm about to hit. Was the giant storm necessary? I don't really think so. It's just something that happens. Maybe it was man-made by harp. Who knows? But the thing is, if you have that kind of ability where you can change something, you put a hundred people or a thousand people together and they're all looking in the same direction going, hmm, this could be different. What act of kindness can we use? How shall we propagate this for the betterment of everyone? And in doing so, elevates everyone to another level of existence just because it's possible. But the world didn't go that way. I always say, Jerry, that the conspiracy, the biggest conspiracy of, of all is the secret of our own potential. And by the way, that the circumference of the hurricane was 1,500 miles, folks. That's about a three-hour flight in, a, in an airliner. So the conspiracy of our own potential, the, the secret. Do you think we all have this, and this is the reason why we have our air is polluted, our, our food is polluted, our water is polluted. Is this why they're trying to keep us dumbed down to the point where we do not discover who we really are? Right. The divinity that lives within you is the most powerful thing in the universe. There's nothing more powerful than that. It's what the universe was created from. But I, I try to teach folks that you are either at the whims of the universe or you're part of the process of creation. And it's where you place yourself that puts you into that position of uh, either some responsibility or none. You're either connected or you're separate. And that's what I've been referring to. Why do you think the date, is there, was it coincidental that the date that was written on your birth certificate says September the 11th? No, it was, it was put there specifically. There was a reason for it, and I suppose it's because of what happened. I, I really don't know. I wish I could say with some certainty, but I really don't know. But I do know that that was not an arbitrary date. They told me that that date was specific to pay attention to it. What do you think? Of course, those who listen know that the official story of 9-11 is, is, is not what really happened. Where do you stand on that date? And why do you think that happened that day specifically and for what reason? Oh, you know, there's so many so many different concepts about that. I don't know that one is more accurate than the other. My personal feeling, well, someone somewhere pulled a date out of a hat, I suppose. But I, I think that it's more, more uh, specific than general. But I don't know what the reasons are. We see Hollywood giving us predictive uh, language there are movies who presented the 9-11 meme years before. Even the movie The Matrix showed at Neo's passport. The expiration date was 9-11-01. It's almost as if they were planting that date. And right now, this hurricane, very, very interesting hurricane that uh, the, the, the behavior was very, very uh, non-peculiar. Now, you travel a lot, uh, Jerry, and this is how we converged. I heard about you going to Bulgaria recently, and we'll talk about Peru, we'll talk about Greece, some of your travels with your wife, Kathy. But let's start with with um, Bulgaria. Professor, am I saying this right? 
Lachesar Filipov. How do you pronounce it? Lachesar, <clears throat> Lachesar. <laughs> Let me get it. It's like latch. So it's Lachesar Filipov. Okay, so I was I was close. Lachesar Filipov. We know that in 2009, the headlines were made in all the alternative news, and people were chasing Professor Filipov. He would not be granting any interviews. I think Kevin Smith almost secured one, but all of a sudden, even with my assistance, the, the mediation of a professor that I that I knew, who disappeared, by the way, after that incident, I never heard from him again, and he's in Vietnam. How did you get in touch with Professor Filipov? What motivated you to go to Bulgaria? Take it from there. When that news came across the wire, the news that you were exposed to as well, <clears throat> that he had been in contact with extraterrestrials, um, Kevin, Kevin Smith, he's a good friend of mine, and he said, um, well, he called me up and said, did you hear about this? And so I looked it up, and sure enough, there it was. So I told Kevin, well, I'll just give him a call and see what he has to say about it. So Kathy did the research, and in a matter of five minutes, had a phone number. I called him and got him on the phone at his office. It was midnight where we were, and um, about eight in the morning there. So we had a very brief conversation. He wanted me to call him on his personal cell phone because he said that, you know, who knows who's listening on this phone? I didn't know what he was talking about. But uh, I said, fine. So I called him back on his cell phone, and we spoke for probably 30 minutes. And um, I wish to this day that I had recorded that conversation because it was so telling. He was exuberant and highly expressive, telling me that they had indeed been in contact with extraterrestrials, that the extraterrestrials had contacted them, wanted to have a meeting with them, with their scientists at the Academy of Sciences, and had important information to relate uh, about this world, the future of this world, and humankind. He said that we are not alone, we've not been alone, and we've never been alone. That They've been here the entire time in varying capacities, but well hidden, and their uh, presence obscured. And that they wanted to let the people of the world know now that they aren't alone and that there are some very serious technological aspects that needed to be addressed. He was almost yelling in the phone, telling me these things. He was so excited. And because he is a scientist of great reputation, well-known in his circles. I mean, this man worked with Carl Sagan and 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 others that are, you know, common names for us. So he said it's his responsibility to the people of this world to let them know what he knows. And I invited him to be a guest on the Kevin Smith show, and he agreed that he would do that, that I, uh, I should have Kevin call him. And he says, we're going to have another meeting in the spring, and... um I, if you would like to be here, I'd like to invite you as my guest. You're calling all the way from the United States. If you can come, then you can come and be my guest here, and you can meet them as well. Kevin tried to call him the next day. There was only an answer and then classical music. Like it was an answering machine, and it didn't have anything that was said. It was just, it rang, click, and then classical music. I had all of his phone numbers. He'd given me all of his, his contact information. I wrote him emails. I called his office. I called his cell phone. I called his house. Always the same result, classical music. So we gave up. It's like, I don't know what happened to him. but And Kevin says, well, I, I sure hope that uh, Dubrovna Shigurinost didn't get him, but it, I think that he's been, I think he's been shut down. Um. So we were making plans to go over there, Kathy, Kevin, and myself. And, of course, we couldn't get a hold of Philipov. So there was nothing we could do. Plans were canceled. Fast forward a couple of years, and um, Kevin has received a video that was smuggled out of Croatia. And in this video, it shows Professor Lachazar Filipov 
looking very disoriented and in quite a shambles. This was a video, incidentally, that was recorded during that period of time. We could not reach him. It was exactly 10 days after my conversation with him. He resurfaced. Which would have been about what, uh, November, December 2009? Mm, I think. Yeah. I don't have a calendar in front of me, but I'm, I'll go by your assessment. Um, during that interview, it was basically all that was ever aired from that interview was just a very beleaguered and confused-looking Filipov, and they said, well, the interview couldn't be conducted because he was drunk. Meanwhile, Kevin gets the full interview. I've seen it. So's Kathy. And Filipov is certainly not drunk. He's sleep-deprived. And according to Kevin, who was um, one of the world police commanders in that part of the world, Dubrovnas Zagurnos, I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, Dubrovnas Zagurnos, I believe it is, though, their tactic, and they're more feared than the KGB, incidentally. They were the go-to guys for the KGB of Soviet time. Oh, yeah. Because they, they could certainly get answers and put a person in place. Their method was to have a person sleep-deprived, and when they would try to sleep, they'd be dumped in ice water, hooked up to electrodes and shocked. And it's because now we know that that's what they do, that during this interview that no one on Earth, except for a handful of people have ever seen, you see Professor Filipov saying, after he's being quizzed over and over, what about the extraterrestrials? What about the meeting with ETs? Over and over and over again by this, this interviewer, Filipov finally looks up with a tooth missing, and he says, that's exactly the information that if I tell you, they will kill me. They, meaning? Who knows? They, meaning whoever told him to be quiet, I would presume. Whoever deprived him of his sleep. Now, so you didn't actually meet him in person. You didn't fly to Bulgaria, or did you? Yes, we went to Bulgaria. Okay, so the story continues. We went to Bulgaria, Kathy and I, and um, proceeded to find Professor Filipov. He already knew we were coming. We were accepted. Went to his office, set up the cameras, and recorded our interview with him. And the entire interview is online. Oh? We found, oh, yeah. Go to expeditionstv.com. You'll find the Philippoff files. Okay. The, um, you know, the thing is, Professor Philippoff is a remarkable man. He is genuine and warm and, and, and funny and sincere. He's, he's a type of person that you're around him a little while and you just like this guy because he's a real neat person. Remember when you used to watch Carl Sagan on TV, uh, and he'd be standing there walking through the set, and he'd be talking about space, and you just felt like, I could like this guy. Filipov is even more so. He's just a really neat person. He has a nice uh, grown daughter. He has a nice family. And I'm sure that uh, this whole escapade put all of their lives in danger. Yeah, and I have... His resume right here, he's his curriculum vitae, and he had a distinguished mainstream scientific career. I'm looking at where he was born. I have his telephone number, fax, email, uh, f when he started, professional training, everything, the academic activity, the memberships, I have it all right here. And when you look at the credentials this man has, why would anybody concoct such an important story? And what you're saying that he disappeared, and this is what happened to, to either of us who tried to get in touch with him at the time. And even this variable of my friend, Professor Brian Ostrowski, who tried and communicated with them, he, he actually brokered an interview. And the moment mm -hmm. it was going to happen, he disappeared. Same thing. I got the classical music. Not only that, I could never get a hold of Dr. Philippov, Professor Philippov again. I could never get a hold of my friend anymore. So this transcends even beyond Professor Filipov, Jerry. Well, then the story is much larger than we suspect. 
um, send me your friend's information, and I'll see if I can do any research on our end. More eyes, more answers, perhaps. I will absolutely. I mean, this is this is a a distinguished individual graduated from Cornell, uh, spent a lot of his youth in in. He goes in Indochina, uh, Vietnam, and he's a lecturer there. He resides in Vietnam. He's been listening to us since the beginning. And after this event happened, I actually met him, Jerry, in person at a conference with Dr. Stephen Greer. We had dinner. And then after this incident, probably a month later, this is October 2009, when I met him in person. And then November of 2009, late November, is when this all happened. And then boom, no Emails returned, no phone calls returned, and you know now we get in touch with you. But anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Tell us more about your visit to Bulgaria. Well, we were watched very closely. Um, we could see the people watching us. The Dubrovna Sigurnost, or whatever it's called. I mean, they were all over the place. And now, who's this individual you keep referring to? Uh, the Dubrovna Sigurdnost is the uh, secret police that supposedly had thought. been disbanded at the onset of democracy. Right. Instead, they just shifted sideways and they went into uh, public positions and private positions, but maintained the secret police. Uh, you know, of course, they they they're still in power. They control everything there. And if anybody knows anything about Bulgaria, they have very very efficient and effective uh, police force and especially during the war for terror talk about people who interrogate the bulgarians are known for this yeah there's not even any big deal security at the airports in bulgaria you just don't have to worry about things there i suppose bulgaria was kind of like the um in that gray light of democracy where they really weren't sure how to live in a democratic society because they'd been under communist rule for so many generations. Uh, the kids, you know, the, the younger generation were kind of breaking loose and doing graffiti and listening to uh, 80s rock and roll, which I thought was wonderful. Yeah. But uh, odd, but wonderful. But, uh, you know, by and large, uh, the place is uh, a very... Well, I wouldn't say very cold, but it, it just seemed so foreign and, and uh, unfriendly to us. Uh, the, the, the folks there are just, you know, kind of like blunt statements and this is how it is. Not, can I help you? Here it is. Do you want it or not? Uh, okay, then leave if you don't want it. That sort of thing. No nonsense, black and white. And yeah. how do they embrace, with all the years of communism, how do they embrace the paranormal in that country? Well, there's a very rich heritage for the paranormal there. And uh, there is, uh, within that culture, there's the understanding that the paranormal exists, there are ghosts, there are extraterrestrials, and there is life on other planets. It's just a given. It's not like it's uh, you know a piece of society that's fractured as over you're thinking about it, the way it's portrayed here in this country. Mm -hmm. It's more like Latin America, where it's just an accepted thing, and well, you know, we want to know more, but until we do, this is fascinating. Great. And tell us more about your visit. When did you get there? Tell us more. We arrived uh, in Bulgaria. My goodness, it was probably five o'clock in the morning. I had not slept all night. Uh, went to a hotel. By 11 o'clock, we were on our way uh, to see Professor Filipov. And by 3 o'clock, we were finished. He walked us out to a taxi stand and uh, sent us on our way. Uh, in those in-between times we were with him, it was basically the conversation, um, you know, just the conversation, the interview, and it was it was fascinating. And the things that uh, really are fascinating about it, having, I mean, this is one of those interviews where if you watch it a few times, if you can manage to watch it a few times and listen carefully, because he, he speaks pretty good English, but there's still an accent there. But if you listen to what he's saying and how it's going, 
there are times when he's veering off the course and trying to change the subject. I bring him back. Hmm. Uh, there are things that are said metaphorically that if you if you get the nod nod wink wink aspect of it, then you know exactly what he said. Um, he started the interview before the cameras were ever cameras were ever running. Kathy was still sitting up um, the camera, and <clears throat> he pulls the phone out of his pocket, pushes a button, listens for a minute, um, sets it down on the table between he and I, and it stayed there the whole interview. Uh, and he says in a very loud voice, "I want to make one thing perfectly clear: I did not have contact with extraterrestrials. That never happened." Wait a second. Uh, now I'm more confused. So he took the phone out almost as if he placed a phone call. Whoever was on the other line needed to hear what was being said. And what did he just say? He said, I want to make, in a very loud voice, uh, we don't have it on tape because the camera wasn't running. Uh, we have like a couple seconds after he finished. But he said in a very loud voice, I want to make one thing perfectly clear. I did not have contact with extraterrestrials. That did not happen. Why would he say that if years before he had stated exactly the opposite? Because if he admits to it, he's in big trouble. He's being listened to, the place is bugged, and there's a party line that he has to hold. Okay, so the reason why he said that was to uh, cover his behind. Absolutely. Almost to what happened... Of the safety of himself and probably his family. Absolutely. This reminds me, Jerry, years ago I interviewed, I don't know if you know the name, Bob or Robert Emenegger. Do you know that name? I've heard it. I, I can't recall what in what context. Well, he and his partner, Adam, Adam uh, Alan Sandler, they had an advertising company. And in the 70s, during the Nixon administration, they were approached to do a movie about disclosure. And... Uh, in a very long story, anybody who's li who's listening can can listen to the interview I did with him. It was actually Grant Cameron who told me that that was probably one of the biggest stories in, in ufology. So anybody listening can listen to that interview I did in 2009. But essentially, the government gave him, I don't know how many thousands of feet of footage of the landing of the craft in uh, uh, Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico, I believe. But at the 11th hour, they removed the footage and only gave him 75 feet for him to use in his documentary called uh, UFOs Past, Present, and Future that was narrated by Rod Serling with the condition that he was to say, this, what you're watching, could have happened or may happen in the future. But they could not say that it actually happen once again to cover their behinds more or less to what dr Filipov is saying here right mm, yeah well i i think more specifically though more specifically than that he's saying it did not happen mm -hmm. now what you know i didn't know that you had this interview available for people so anybody can can actually watch it on online on your website what we did because it cost us so much to do this we put it up on Expeditions TV. It's the only it's the only thing that we have up there that actually has a cost in order to okay. view it. But we That's did fine. that so that we could recover, you know, the few thousands of dollars we spent to go get this. And that's perfectly fair. So if anybody wants to watch it, they have to pay a fee. Where do they go to watch it? Um, go to expeditionstv.com. It's spelled with an X, not an EX. So it's X-P-E-D-I-T-I-O-N-S-T-V.com. And we have to take our one and only intermission, Jerry. But when we come back, if you could, I want you to summarize what was said there. And I hope people can go there and, and, and watch the, the interview by themselves and, and support Jerry Wills and his wife, Kathy. Because, folks, when you go around the world like this and you are brave enough to, to interview somebody like Dr. Filipov, it's not free. It takes a lot of time and a lot of money and helping Jerry and helping Veritas. This is how we, how we stay on the air. You were not uh, sponsored by any big company to go there, right, Jerry? No, uh -uh. we did it because we wanted to bring the answers back. There were too many people that didn't know that were making 
uh, assumptions, and we wanted to bring back absolutes, and so we did. When we come back, folks, we're going to be talking about what transpired during the interview. He's going to summarize it. I will talk about 2012. We'll talk about many other things, but tell us how people get in touch with your work. Well, it's two different websites. The first one is expeditionstv.com, and the other is jerrywills.com, W-I-L-L-S, jerrywills.com. And do you have any expeditions planned in the near future? Oh, yes. Um, actually, we have a rather dangerous one coming up in December. And you want to talk about it? Sure. Um, basically, what we have going on in December, uh, we are going back to a place we were at 12 years ago. It might be 13 years now. I don't recall exactly. We went back uh, into that area and the, into the, the Tokachi Valley, which is in north-central Peru. It's an area that is, or at least was, uh, a stronghold for the Shining Path and uh, narco-traffickers. Uh, Kathy and I had received a photo from a fellow living there showing a very large boulder with inscriptions all over it. We'd not seen anything like this previously, so Kathy thought that she could read it. But in order to really read it, we needed to go. We couldn't just go on one picture. So... Uh, we had saved up for a couple of years, and uh, <laughs> we went. When we got there, uh, we found there were a couple of boulders. The biggest of them, she finally translated. It was sort of a road map. Uh, it described what lies up this valley. And it was very clear to her and later to me when she described to me how to read it. Uh, she's much better than I was. That there were several cities back there so we inquired with the local population the older men of this this really remote mountainous area it's where the amazon and the andes mountains merge so it's it's heavily forested and it's very mountainous the mountains are like jagged pieces of glass sticking out covered in moss you might say and the uh men of these villages said yeah there's uh and they drew us a map and that's what the boulder says? Yeah, that's what the boulder's saying to me. Well, what is this? Well, that shows a cave. Well, there's a cave right over here. It's got gold in it. So we, at that moment, decided we're going. And we took off and hiked 85 miles back up the Takachi Valley. Wait a second. You hike how many miles? 85 miles. Oh, jeez. Okay. Up one mountain and down the other. Five burrows loaded with supplies, and we had never done anything quite like that before. We got as far as a place called Mamak, which is basically a house on the side of a mountain. And this is a place where you are at the lower um, levels of a huge lost city. It's just right up the mountain, just right there. Um, the place we wanted to go to. Uh, which doesn't have a name. Um, we weren't able to get to because of landslides and, and heavy rains. But um, at any rate, there are five lost cities. We located uh, we located five of them, all five of them. And so in December, we're going back because one of the things that we found on, at one of these places has inscriptions on a stone it's up near the top of a mountain it's kind of an orange wedge shaped piece of um, andrasite like granite and one of the characters engraved on this stone is the symbol for Inti which from Zachariah Stitchin and all of that he's prominently displayed on this stone there's also faces and things going on and so we coined this stone the doomsday stone because to us it's showing how a great flood washed over the andes and hold it right there because we have to take our break and when we come back we'll continue but also you had a lot of footage uh, the 35 millimeter camera that you used but there was a lot of moisture humidity rain and you lost a lot of that so that's one of the reasons why you're returning correct yes 
When we come back, folks, I'm here with Jerry Wills, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy. This is Bob Emenager, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. <laughs> 